Welcome to 2819. I'm Sandra Dimas. And I'm Daniel Elmagier. And today's topic, we're going to be addressing the question, why is the universe so large? It's that, so big. I've had that question before yeah. as well, because I'm like, if Earth is the only found habitable planet, mm -hmm. why is there all this space up yeah. there? That's a good question. In Everyday Apologetics, we'll hear from astrophysicist Jeff Zwerink as he explains the multiverse. And in Science Faith Connection, Jeff Zwerink will talk with astrophysicist Hugh Ross on why life requires such a large universe. First up will be Culture Talk. Sandra will be interviewing Jeff Zwerink on a question many of us might wonder, are humans significant in the vast cosmos? So let's go ahead and check it out. Now it's time for Culture Talk, where we talk about culturally relevant topics you can use to start conversations about your faith. And I'm joined today with astrophysicist Jeff Swearing. Thank you for joining us. Good to be here, Sandra. We're going to be talking about a topic really that I think is on a lot of people's minds right now, especially in light of the James Webb Telescope, mm -hmm. and that is, are humans significant in a vast cosmos? So get ready to dive in. All right. Um, something that our social media manager let us know is this video that's going around the internet. Um, I'm going to describe it here. It's a person resting in a park, and then they zoom out and out and out, and we see the country, the planet, our solar system, mm -hmm. the Milky Way, and then it goes even farther. We see the Hubble Deep Field image with seemingly countless galaxies. We see the Laniakea, which literally means immeasurable heaven. We see that, and it's Mil the Milky Way is one of 100,000 galaxies. Mm -hmm. um, we see the cosmic web, the cosmic microwave background radiation afterglow of the Big Bang. We see the entire universe, and then the multiverse. That's a lot to take in. Can you mm -hmm. help the average person like me understand and grasp really how large the cosmos is? It's really actually very hard. I would mm -hmm. say as a scientist, I just kind of get used to it because you're talking about, you know, if you're going out to the edge of the observable universe, that's 50 billion light years away. Wow. Now I can use the numbers. I know what the terms mean so I can talk about it as though I'm comfortable, but there's just no way I can fathom that right. distance because one light second is the distance from the moon to the earth. Well, it takes us eight days to get to the moon and back with our rockets. And so light gets there in one second. So in some sense, no, I can't really. Wow. You can just kind of get used to it by talking about the numbers and knowing what the terms mean. But we live in a enormous universe that is... What I love about those videos is, yeah, they show that there's all these galaxies, but there are also certain distances where there's just vast stretches of nothingness. Oh, wow. And we live in a very awesome, impressive, and somewhat depressing if <laughs> all that there is is the physical yeah. universe. So. Yeah, and well, that's a point that I think is important to touch on um, about the kind of depressing component to that because it when I thought of that video, and it did go from that person zooming all the way out, mm -hmm. and then it zoomed back mm -hmm. in, and it kind of made me think, gosh, we're so small. I'm sending, you know, tiny little emails, doing my tiny little work, and we're in this vast cosmos, and it can be easy to kind of feel either insignificant or just very grateful, depending on one's perspective. Mm -hmm. But like, how do we know that there's significance to us being here? Well, I think there's two answers to that question. Mm -hmm. One, I think a little more scientifically, 
is that you know we have this intuitive sense that life is valuable and important mm -hmm. and you know earth is just teeming with life mm -hmm. and when you look and ask the question what kind of universe supports life well given the laws of physics the universe needs to be pretty old it's got if it's old it's going to be very vast mm -hmm. the distances between stars are going to be great and all of that is important for putting together the elements like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and hydrogen that life requires mm -hmm. and making sure that the heavier components, the uranium, the thorium, the iron, the potassium, all these things that are important for life, those are made in stars and so stars have to grow and explode and populate that all. So there, there's this scientific reason why if the universe were much different, I'd be surprised if there was any life in it. That mm -hmm. this, this kind of universe is what it takes to make life. Mm -hmm. But I also think there's another answer to that question which really is kind of getting away, if, if all there is is physical, then yeah, we're insignificant. I don't think there is an answer if there's only physical. Interesting. So do you, I like the way that you're explaining what is needed in order for life to exist. I kind of think, because I need to simplify it and kind of understand it in terms I, that make a little bit of sense for me, I think of it almost like a farmer and the work that a farmer would do to prepare the soil for mm -hmm. seed and then water and wait and let it grow and then eventually lead to me having a salad for lunch. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that is a lot of work for that goal of me to enjoy a salad. And I, I kind of think maybe that is a way to help people understand, especially when we think about um, God, God's hand in creation mm -hmm. and in the universe. Like, would you explain it in those terms of it being, it, that it is required to have such a vast universe in order to have life? Given the way God structured things, yeah, this is the sort of stuff that needs to happen. You need 14 billion years for the stars to form. You need a planet that has been around a long time because all of the continents and the nutrients and the, the minerals that we see, they just take a long time to form given the way the laws of physics work. But I, I think there's a part of this where I, I'm not entirely sure why we do, but we think of this entirely in terms of engineering. Uh -huh. <laughs> and if I am trying to produce this outcome and I have to take all of these resources, it seems very inefficient. Mm. You know, there's that movie Contact. You know, if we're yeah. the only life in here, seems like an awful waste right. of space. It just seems inefficient. Mm -hmm. But I think we also need to remember, one, I think there's answers to that. I think from an engineering perspective, we can say, all right, this is why the universe has to be for us to be here. Mm -hmm. But we also have to remember, God's not just an engineer. Mm -hmm. God's also an artist. Mm -hmm. And you don't get upset at the artist for taking years to craft the book so that it comes out with just the right language or enormous amount of resources to hang banners throughout New York like the Gates did back in the early 2000s or, you know, carving a sculpture, the fact that that takes a long time and you end up with this relatively small thing compared to, that's what an artist does. It shows the value of what's there. And I think the confusion is where you seem insignificant is if we place our value on our size or importance in the cosmos mm -hmm. instead of recognizing that our value is because God created us in his image. So, you know, I have a kid, you know, my oldest son, he's valuable because he's my son. Mm -hmm. The fact that I've had four kids after that in no way diminishes his value, even though he becomes a smaller fraction of the family, if you will. He's valuable because he's my son. Mm -hmm. I'm valuable, you're valuable, because God created us in his image. 
regardless of how big the universe is. And he's given this incredible universe that we can go out and explore that points to how valuable we are. Oh, I really love your explanation, especially as a parent thinking of children and thinking that they're, you know, they're all valuable. Um, so if you're talking with a skeptic and they're pointing out that common challenge, well, the cosmos is vast. And not only that, there's a possibly multiple universes and we're only looking at it from what works for life to exist in our galaxy. What are the parameters around a multiverse theory and those other universes? They might have entirely different um, laws mm -hmm. that allow life to exist, and so we—it's like it's—it's it's silly to think that we're alone. How would you engage in that conversation? To whether or not there are mm -hmm. life forms elsewhere, how are we significant in that scenario? Well, I think the key question there is not how big is the universe, how vast or whatever, or whether we're one amongst a bunch of multiverses. Mm -hmm. The question is, is God responsible for all this mm -hmm. or is it just kind of a brute reality and there really is no meaning and purpose? If the latter is true, we can do all we want and we're just fooling ourselves at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But when you look at, even in a multiverse, do we see evidence of a beginning? Well, if there's a beginning, Bible talks about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if the heavens and the earth is just bigger than what I thought, that's just even more spectacular and majestic. Do we see evidence of design in a multiverse? Yeah, we do. What we see is when we look at what life requires, we see the handiwork of a creator to put us here. And if that's true, it doesn't matter how big it is or where we are, we need to not confuse location or size or importance in the physical workings to cloud that the reason why we're important is because God created us. Mm -hmm. And so that would be my response. It's like, why is it the fact that we have a multiverse? Why does that diminish my importance in God's eyes if he created us, whether he created uh, Earth is the only place where there's life or whether he created life throughout the universe. We're still created in his image and we're still valuable to him. Yeah. Well, that is definitely a more hopeful answer, not as bleak as, uh, you know, that we aren't significant. So thank you so much for that. We are just scratching the surface on this topic. So if you want to hear more from Dr. Jeff Zwerink, go to support.reasons.org and search for Who's Afraid of the Multiverse. Do we live in a universe? Or is there a vast multitude of universes out there that we can't see? Well, that's an outstanding scientific question that a lot of scientific minds are pouring resources and investment trying to answer and understand that question. To get a good handle on it, though, we need to know what the multiverse is. And in order to know what the multiverse is, we have to talk about, figure out how we define our universe. And to do that, we're going to need a tool or we're going to need to understand a principle. And that principle can be illustrated by imagining or remembering, if you have, being in a lightning storm. Now, when you're in a lightning storm, there are two ways that you can measure the storm, if you will. You can watch out and you see the lightning, or you can listen and you can hear the thunder. And very often you'll sit there and you'll see the lightning and then you'll count and figure out how long it took for the thunder to get here and that tells you how far away it is. And the reason that works is that the light travels to you much faster than the sound does. Now, if you put it in a little bit of a different context or look at it a little differently, the light is giving you a picture of the storm at a certain time. 
But if you're listening to the thunder, you're getting a picture of the storm at a slightly earlier time because the sound from the, th the thunder fr that comes when the lightning happens takes longer to reach to you. So by listening, you're actually hearing things a little bit further back than by watching the lightning. Now, the reason why that works is because the sound travels more slowly than the light. But it turns out that the light itself actually takes time to travel. For here on Earth, that's largely irrelevant, but as we begin looking out at objects out in the heavens, we realize that it takes a substantial amount of time. Go out to the closest object to us, the moon. When we're looking out at the moon, it's a little over 200,000 miles away from us. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So we're seeing the light from the sun, or the light from the moon takes about a second to travel to us. Or stated another way, we're actually seeing the moon as it appeared a little over one second ago. If we move out and look at the sun, the light there takes between eight and eight and a half minutes to get to us. And so if the sun were to go out right now, you wouldn't know it for eight to eight and a half minutes because that's how long it takes the light from the sun to travel from the sun to you. And so you're actually seeing the sun as it appears eight, little over eight minutes ago. Well, we can extend that principle out further. The further out we look, the further back in time we're seeing. If we go back and look at the closest large galaxy to us, the Andromeda galaxy, the light from the Andromeda galaxy takes two and a half million years to travel from the Andromeda to us. So again, we're seeing it, we're seeing the Andromeda galaxy as it looked two and a half million years ago. Moving out a little further, we can go out and look at uh, uh, one of the, the, the more spectacular astronomical images taken, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Now this, this image here is actually takes up the amount of space of about 1 50th of the moon, or if you were to line it up across the moon, it would, it would be about 1 7th the diameter of the moon. And it's, there's a thousand, or about 10,000 objects in this image, and most of those are galaxies, all but maybe a handful are stars. And so we're seeing very, very distant galaxies. And some of these galaxies are very red. Some of them are incredibly distant. In fact, the light from some of these galaxies has taken upwards of 12 billion years to travel from that galaxy to us. So as we look at those particular galaxies, again, we're seeing them as they were 12 billion years ago. And if we keep pushing back further and further out, asking how far away can we see, we eventually run into the cosmic microwave background radiation. Now that radiation has taken just, uh, just right at 13.7 billion years to reach us. And so again, we're seeing, this is a picture of the universe, if you will, from 13.7 billion years ago. Now, Given that the universe is only 13.7 billion years old, we can only go a little bit further than the cosmic microwave background radiation, and eventually we reach a place where because the universe has a beginning, that there's a certain age to it, that if we try to look any further, the light from objects any further have not had time to traverse the distance from that object to us. And so what we can define is an observable universe. And the observable universe is simply the furthest reaches that an object at that distance, the light from objects at that distance, could have traveled to Earth in, that, in, the, in the age of the universe. With that definition in hand now, anything that the light has had time to reach the Earth, we can now begin to ask the question, what is the multiverse? Well, now we could imagine if we were instantaneously transported out to the edge of the observable universe, we would probably see more space and time and matter and energy very similar to what we see. 
And we can ask the question, how big might that be? And, and uh, there's, there would be other regions outside of our observable universe that are the size of our observable universe. And so that would be one way of defining the multiverse. So it's, it's the stuff beyond what we can see, but it's largely space, time, matter, and energy, very similar to what we would see in our universe. It's just far enough away that we can't see it. Now, we could imagine, say, take all of that stuff that kind of looks like our, the space-time matter energy of our observable universe and ask, is it possible that maybe there's something else? Maybe even with all of that stuff, all of this stuff that constitutes the observable universe and the stuff like it, maybe there are things completely separate from that, that there are other universes, completely different laws of physics, other space-time dimensionality, maybe there's no matter, maybe there's only energy. Uh, those would be other universes. And so, we, when we talk about the multiverse, we can define at least two different kinds of multiverse. And broadly speaking, the multiverse is just simply physical realms beyond the observable universe. So there we have a good definition. The observable universe is all the stuff that we could possibly see from Earth. The multiverse is just anything beyond that region. Now there are two different kinds that are fairly popular in the scientific literature. There's the level one, which I will, I'll refer to as a level one multiverse, which is just the other stuff that's like our universe or our observable universe just far enough away that we can't see it. That's kind of a level one. That's a controversial or non-controversial scientific multiverse. Uh, it would be very surprising if that sort of multiverse doesn't exist. Typically when scientists talk about the multiverse, they're talking about a level two. Those with other universes, with different laws of physics. These are infinitely far away from us. These are not things that uh, it, we could instantaneously be transported. And if we were, it would look nothing like our universe. And so we've got this level one multiverse, which is just more of the same region of space beyond what we can see. And then there's the level two multiverse, which is other universes with different laws of physics and different dimensionalities, different constants. It looks very different from our universe. So there we have it. We have a good definition for our universe. We have a good definition for how to define the multiverse, what actually it is. And the, one of the big questions is, how does this interact with the Christian faith? Well, when we look at scripture, we see that God's certainly capable of creating a multiverse. After all, he talks about creating a new heaven and new earth, which is going to be completely separate from this universe. He's created the angelic realm. And the fact that God's capable of creating the multiverse and shows us that he will do something like that in the future gives us impetus actually to go out and study what does the multiverse have to say? Did God create a multiverse here? How do we answer these questions? We can, as Christians, we can go out confident knowing that as we explore his creation, we'll get a greater and better understanding of how God actually made this universe. Hello, Jeff Zwerink, and welcome back to Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we explore important scientific ideas and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity. Joined again by uh, founder of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hugh Ross, and we're going to be investigating why the universe looks the way it does. Hugh, it's good to have you here again today. Oh, thank you. So one of the things that I have found kind of fascinating in a number of ways is when we look out at the universe, there's the stuff that we can see. And that's a pretty small fraction of what's out there. We find a whole lot more stuff, roughly 95 more percent of the stuff is this dark matter and dark energy. Why is the universe constructed that way? Why did God do it that way? 
Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, in terms of the stars, the galaxies, the interstellar molecular uh, nebulae, uh, the stuff we see through telescopes, it's only 0.27% of all the stuff of the universe. But what we notice is the visible ordinary matter, the dark ordinary matter, the dark matter, uh, and the dark energy. Each of those must be incredibly fine-tuned in order for life to exist in the universe. So all that stuff, it's got to be exactly the way it is in exactly those proportions uh, for us human beings to be able to thrive in the universe. So kind of flesh that out a little bit. What would happen if one of those might be different, if the dark, dark matter were more or less or something like that? Well, if you were to take the total matter of the universe and uh, make it any less, uh, then all the only elements that stars would ever be able to produce would be hydrogen and helium. You wouldn't get any elements heavier than helium. Make the universe slightly more massive than it is, and then the future stars very quickly fuse all the hydrogen and helium into elements uh, as heavy as iron or heavier. In both cases, you're missing the carbon, the oxygen, the nitrogen that life needs. And also the mass of the universe and dark energy determine how rapidly the universe expands from the cosmic creation event. And so uh, the expansion of the universe determines how far apart the stars and galaxies are at the narrow window of time in which human uh, life is possible. And that spacing must be fine-tuned for us human beings to be able to enjoy civilization uh, on a planet within the universe. So one, of, one often challenge that uh, particularly arises in Christian circles is having a universe that's 14 billion years old and Earth that's four and a half billion years old. It just seems like when you read through scripture, I mean, you know, there's the first chapter of Genesis, humanity arises, humanity dominates what's going on throughout scripture. How can there possibly be 14 billion years worth of stuff? Doesn't that, why did, why did God have to take so long? It seems like a waste of time. Well, it really does, but we need to understand that uh, God had specific reasons for constructing the universe as dominated by length, width, height, and time, and also had good reasons why he wanted certain laws of physics operating. And so the four space-time dimensions, uh, plus thermodynamics, gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear force must be fine-tuned uh, for the creator, God, uh, to rapidly and efficiently eradicate all evil and suffering while he enhances the free real capability of humans uh, to express and receive love. I mean, that was God's ultimate purpose in creating. And so we need to understand that Christianity is a two creation model where God creates the universe to be a tool to eradicate evil and suffering, and which is followed by a new creation where we have different laws of physics. In the new creation, nothing decays, nothing dies because the new creation there's no thermodynamics, there's no gravity, there's no electromagnetism. But what I explain and why the universe is the way it is, why those laws of physics are critical uh, for the efficient, rapid elimination of evil and suffering. So as long as we got evil and suffering, we need those laws of physics. And with those laws of physics, it literally takes nearly 14 billion years uh, to prepare all the elements that are necessary for advanced life to exist. And even then, our planet Earth is 
is at the minimum time. There's really no way you can get a planet Earth with all the elements that it has, the relative abundance of elements, in anything less than 13.8 billion years. So we're here in the physics of the universe at the minimum time that we could possibly exist. In that sense, God was in a hurry. Uh, he was pressing the accelerate button all the way. So you're saying that the, you know, thousands of years that er er humanity has been on the earth, that that is uh, working towards the conquest of evil rapidly. But in order to do have that time period be relatively short, thousands of years, God structured things so that there were billions of years leading up to that. Give us yeah. some insight. What how does how does the physics weigh in on that? What does science show that that validates that sort of idea? Well, the universe begins with only hydrogen. In the first four minutes, about a quarter of that hydrogen is converted into helium. That hydrogen and helium, uh, you know, gas clouds will compress and form stars, and stars will fuse that hydrogen and helium into heavier elements. But it takes three successive generations of stars forming and dying in order to get the adequate elements, the 92 elements we see in the periodic table at the adequate abundance levels so that human life is possible. And yeah, there's really no way to do it more rapidly than 13.8 billion years, if indeed you have the universe governed by electromagnetism, gravity, thermodynamics, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. So it kind of makes sense that it takes a long time to get where we are so that humanity can be here. What sort of evidence do you have that supports the idea that the laws of physics are structured to have a rapid conquest of evil today? How does electricity and magnetism weigh into this kind of moral idea, if you will? Well, you go to Genesis chapter three, and the moment that Adam and Eve sin, what does God say? Because of your sin from now on, you're going to experience more work and you're going to experience more pain. Ecclesiastes adds, you're also going to waste more time. And uh, the extra pain, extra work, and wasted time will be in proportion to the evil that human beings commit. And it's basically the principle, hey, uh, when you sin, you do damage to your environment. And it takes extra work, uh, extra time, and extra pain uh, to clean up the mess that you've caused. And so that's a powerful motivator for all human beings to avoid evil and pursue virtue for no other reason than to get out of all this extra work, extra pain, and wasted time. We're biologically designed that none of us enjoys extra pain, extra work, and uh, extra uh, time. And so that motivates us, but it also helps us to discover that we need help. We don't have the resources within ourselves to lead a completely virtuous life. We need help from our creator. And that's the whole message of the Bible that God indeed is prepared to trade his moral perfection for a moral imperfection if we come into relationship with him through what Jesus Christ the creator did for us on the cross 2000 years ago. So when we look at humanity, you know, the latest scientific data points to humanity being around something on the order of 100, 200,000 years. Why has, why do you think God has allowed humanity to be on the planet for so long if he's wanting to have a rapid conquest of evil? 100,000 years seems like quite a long time for that. Well, I mean, you and I are both astronomers. 100,000 years seems like a really brief time. I mean, the fact that God's pulling all this off in just 100,000 years 
in my opinion, is amazingly fast. And keep in mind that God's goal was to redeem billions of human beings uh, into a relationship with himself. And so you say, why the 100,000 years? Well, it takes that much time to get several tens of billions of people to live on the planet and be able to receive the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as creator, Lord, and Savior. Uh, I can't conceive of it happening any more rapidly. Well, thanks, you again. I appreciate your comments. This has been very helpful and instructive. You know, it is true. When you look through scripture, God has a plan for humanity. He wants people to know him. He invites them into the relationship he enjoys in the Trinity in and of himself. And he set up this fabulous universe that's billions of years old so that we can be here and billions of people can know the love that God has for him. Hugh's written a great book on this. Go to reasons.org, look for his book. It's called Why the Universe is the Way It Is. We'll give you lots of good scientific reasons why the universe looks the way it does and what God is doing and how you can use those scientific evidences to share the love of God with people around you. We hope this episode has helped equip you to share your faith with compassion and confidence. And, you know, I really love this topic because I saw the James Webb telescope right. images. Mm -hmm. I saw that video where, where it super zoom out. zooms out. Right. Mind-blowing like, to me. <laughs> I'm like, we're so small. Right. And I love the answers of really, one, why a universe mm -hmm. needs to be so large, and then why that actually is hopeful yeah. and shows our significance. Exactly. So if you would like to watch more shows like this, subscribe to the show and also search for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at 2819show. And if you would like the audio version of the show, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search Reasons to Believe Podcast. See you next week. See ya.